Part of what we do is show that, again, this completely ideologically corrupted corporate media narrative about Jacob Blake was not just wrong. I've taken to calling it anti-truth. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, those of you who follow the show know that uh, we just presented, we just published a video essay called The Death of Truth. And in that essay, I talk about the distinction between my truth and objective truth and post-truth. And today we have uh, uh, an exciting uh, filmmaker named Rob Muntz. He's American. And he's actually using documentary film. He started his own company. He's producing his own uh, movies that really focus on this and, and, and the, the importance of truth in the culture in different contexts. So we're going to talk with him about uh, his company and why he got started, how he sort of uh, arrived in the space where he is right now. We're also going to talk about some of his, uh, some of his films. And I, I can tell you, I've seen three of them. They're all excellent, very, very edifying, and I recommend them strongly. Uh, so Rob Montz, thank you very much for being with us today in Grey Matter. It's a pleasure to have you on as our special guest. Thanks for having me. Okay. So Rob, uh, Rob is a filmmaker, as I said. He's CEO of something called Good Kid Productions, which he created. And uh, he's also created a number of really, really interesting documentary uh, films that have attracted millions of, of views. Um, and uh, he's had coverage in the New York Times, a former newspaper, the Washington Post, The Economist, USA Today, and The Megyn Kelly Show. Uh, he's a graduate of Brown University with a degree in philosophy. And he says precisely zero marketable skills. Well, apparently you've, you've, you've debunked that, Rob. Uh, apparently your skills are quite marketable. <laughs> debatable, debatable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, somehow he ended up living on a 50-acre farm in the Virginia woods with the wife and three children. So maybe, Rob, we could start there. Obviously, um, you're very, very well-educated, maybe over-educated out of Brown. So how did you become sort of a libertarian-leaning uh, you know, filmmaker? And, and how did you end up on a 50-acre farm in the Virginia woods? Well, I don't want to overstate the level of intentionality that got us to this place, right? Uh, it was more that about 18 months after graduating, I finally confronted the deep, deep existential truth that I'd spent most of my life ignoring, which is that I didn't know what to do with myself. And uh, I was unsatisfied with the current position that I was in, which is in, in America, at least, if you have an excessive amount of credentials and you're kind of vaguely ambitious and you move to Washington, D.C., 99% of the time you end up in corporate communications because mm -hmm. that's where the ambitious people with excessive degrees but no hard skills go to make some money, right? Mm -hmm. I can't fix anything. I don't have, I don't have any science degrees. I'm not going to make any uh, biotherapeutics, but I can make some words that are going to be compelling to people. And the job that I had uh, was a corporate communication shop that, I wouldn't say it stirred my soul. Didn't uh, I didn't find it particularly satisfying, but I had absolutely no idea what to do. And the only advice I was getting from all the people around me and other people that were in a similar position that were in a ex similar existential rut was to go to law school. It's like, <laughs> I don't, I mean, I feel like, it should, I feel like I should be, ought to be more intentional. And I had always loved film. I'd loved documentaries. Um, and I didn't want to go to school. So I, and so I, I ended up applying for a very small fellowship uh, with a libertarian nonprofit. And specifically, the idea was I was going to make my first film and teach myself film while I was doing it. And again, one of my great advantages is that I'm blindly self-confident and completely overly optimistic about my own skill set, which sometimes that can be a great asset. Sometimes it can be a great liability. In this particular instance, it ended up being an asset because I decided what I wanted to do was pick apart the North Korean propaganda apparatus. I'd always been oh. fascinated by North Korea, obviously. Mm -hmm. And one of the central mysteries of the North Korean regime is that every couple years, all the smart foreign policy pundits in America predict its imminent collapse. 
And for decades now, North Korea has been defying those predictions. And it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Like, I always thought, like, why is that? And anyway, over the course of the documentary, talking to a bunch of experts and actually traveling to North Korea myself about 10 years ago, I spent 10 days there filming in Pyongyang. You figure out that um, one of the essential elements of the regime's resilience is its propaganda apparatus, its ability to tell a certain story to its right. population mm -hmm. that does actually elicit a sense of organic loyalty to the regime. Right. And that did well enough. I mean, I'm embarrassed about it now, technically, because I didn't know what I was doing. But I think that actually set the paradigm that I've been iterating off of ever since, which is trying provocative, contrarian, story-based analysis that's, that's meant to be kind of visually and aesthetically propulsive, tackling topics other people won't tackle, but with a level of ideally, you know, emotional sophistication and storytelling ability that hits both the head and the heart. That's the idea. That's the aim. That's the ambition. So how did you get started with Good Kid? And where does Good Kid come from? It's an interesting title. Uh, well, <laughs> it's a... I had done well enough freelancing for YouTube channels that I we got the opportunity to start our own channel with our own production company. So all the all the documentaries we're going to talk about now mm -hmm. are available on the Good Kid Productions YouTube channel. Okay, and uh, it's meant to be. It's kind of a, a, a ironic double meaning, where to a certain extent, because of our you know reasonably described conservative politics we do believe in abiding by the script one inherits about the good life right it turns out all the boring cliched advice you receive from grandma grandpa about like work hard engage in a faith community invest in your friends invest in a family that that formula for human flourishing has been tested over eons and is correct. <laughs> and is it wow. absolutely correct, bro? Right? <laughs> so on so one cool. hand, you do want to be good. On yeah. the other hand, if down in America, and it's even worse in Canada, we are in active rebellion against the dominant political orthodoxy, at least in the elite corridors, right? At least right. at Brown University yeah. and other elite in Washington, DC, New York City, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in a certain sense, we're not we're not very good. I mean, not to put too fine of a point on it, but we're not good. We're not good. And we don't we question the conceptual framework that defines good in these spaces. And mm -hmm. part of what we try to do is pick that apart and deconstruct it. Yeah. So that's my excessively literal interpretation of the name of our That's company. a great introduction to, <laughs> to your uh, documentaries. And it actually aids my understanding of them, deepens my understanding of them. Uh, so let's start with uh, the one that, let's talk about the presidency of the United States. And uh, on this show, we we sort of set things up with aphorisms. So I've got a, a few from presidents. One is from uh, Thomas Jefferson. And uh, he wrote something a long time ago. You probably heard this, Rob, uh, or read this, that the two enemies of the people are criminals and government. So let us tie the second down with the chains of the Constitution so the second will not become the legalized version of the first. And I could say that... That seems to apply very much to what's going on with the Democrats in Washington, and it definitely applies with what's going on in, in Canada and with our federal government. Now, let's turn to a modern uh, president who you uh, made a film about. Uh, Donald Trump, he said, leaders, true leaders, take responsibility for the success of the team and understand that they must also take responsibility for the failure. He also said... I think the only difference between me and other candidates is that I'm more honest and my women are more beautiful. Let's talk about the presidency. Um, you, you, you made this film several years ago on the power of the presidency. It's called Trump as Destiny, Why the Reality Show Presidency Was Inevitable. You want to talk about that a little bit? First of all, about, about the title and what's, what's the concept of the film and what, what were you trying to present in that documentary? What's the thesis of it? Modern Americans would not be able to recognize what the presidency was intended to be in our founding, right? I mean, it's not surprising that a group of these Enlightenment-era hyper-rationalist American rebels, when they're setting up the back-end programming for this new government, after having just thrown off the chains of imperial Great Britain, 
built in a lot of protections to ensure they would never have a king again by right. design, never have mm -hmm. a king again, no kings. The whole idea with America is that it's not a utopian project. It doesn't have some naive conception of human beings as infinitely perfectible or any human as perfectible. Everybody's flawed. Everybody has the worst angels of their nature. Build systems to account for what human nature is, not what you wish it would be, right? And so by that, the way that they designed the presidency is actually remarkably limited in what its, its powers. Right. It's the chief executive officer, but it's mostly there as... Um, as a check against the popular passions of Congress, which is supposed to be the organ of government that does most of the heavy lifting when it comes to legislation, because mm -hmm. that's also the most democratically sensitive organ in our, you know, our tripart American federal system. Right. And what this, what the documentary does is it shows how and why and who pushed the presidency from that, which is an extremely modest conception of what this office is to what it's become today, which is like all purpose, God, King, CEO of the economy, savior of the national soul, um, your best friend or your worst enemy, the devil. It's, it, you know, it's, it's like moronically mythic language that's attached to people, even boring presidents like Biden, like what we got now. But right. when I made that doc, it was in the heyday I was still in Washington, D.C., and the city was still reverberating, traumatically reverberating from the election of Donald Trump. And all the headlines were about how this was completely unprecedented, that we've never seen anyone like this before. And then if you picked it apart a little bit, though, Trump at the time was extremely good at selling himself as a savior. I mean, he very famously said, I alone can fix it. Right. He talks about how the nation's doomed if he doesn't get elected. And far from being anomalous rhetorical excesses, that to me felt completely in line with the way that his predecessors of both parties had sold themselves as well. Like you want to look at Barack Obama's uh, <laughs> rhetorical legacy mm -hmm. and you're going to call it like, was Obama defined by a modest or moderate conception of the presidency? Of course not. And part of what you're trying to, the doc is about is, it's extremely unhealthy to infuse that much mythic energy into this office of one man because it doesn't have the normal checks and balances. Now, the ultimate irony is this. Now we're at the, the conclusion, you know, where, where we've seen the four years, the first four years, I don't know, of the Trump <laughs> presidency. And while being rhetorically maximalist and how Trump talked about himself, he actually was one of the least aggressive users of executive authority of the last hundred years, which is very interesting, mm. both in terms of the formal uses of the power, but also any attempts for the White House to sort of annex powers that are duly accorded to other chambers. A lot of the time, I mean, I'm not the first person to point this out. Trump, it seemed like he would, he was operating as if he wasn't president. It was like he was just a yeah. commenter on Twitter. How do you, how do you account for that, Rob? Why would that be? I mean, I don't, I don't have a, I mean, he's like a dysfunctional narcissist. I mean, that's why. <laughs> and he's not he's not a fascist. He's not Mussolini. He just likes attention. And he has a certain genius at directing attention, right? A certain charisma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I don't like like bro, it's like people are still talking about he how he was a unique fascist threat. In America, we had a virus that came from China, the great Satan in the Trump worldview, China. And he is given a golden once in an opportunity to impose an authoritarian vision on America. It's like this novel virus. Everybody's ready and primed for lockdowns, extended lockdowns. And what does he do? He essentially turns over all the COVID power making authority in, in, in America to Anthony Fauci and some other unelected bureaucrats that actively hate his guts, right? He chose consciously to reject the powers that could have been accorded him under those extreme circumstances. And, and just to finally finish this up, on the flip side, there are presidents that get immunized from critical inquiry because of that kind of distracting mythical aura. Right. A guy like JFK, who even today in America, you know, I'm sure I'm sure he's famous enough in Canada. Oh, he is. Yes. Is our Camelot young Jesus God, like shot down before he could bring healing to the country. Right. If you look at his actual record, and he's the guy who's amping up American involvement in Vietnam, and he's sicking American intelligence apparatus against his Republican opponents. 
Nobody, no one talks about this. Nobody knows anything about this. Things like yeah. the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, were not instances of JFK's heroic Camelot leadership. He actually incited Russian aggression in Cuba because he and his brother were completely obsessed with Castro. And to put even a finer point on it, zoom to his most charismatic successor, Barack Obama. Obama was able to get away with a lot of gangster stuff, particularly in foreign policy, because the media wouldn't question his uses of authority because they saw him as this, you know, racially healing God King, mm -hmm. particularly his use of signature drone strikes, which occasionally were used to wipe out American citizens, essentially went uncriticized during his time in office because of that distracting mythic halo around him, right? right. Like he did... Obama did the things that people were worried Trump was going to do. <laughs> and we still, in America at least, still have not really come to account for it. I mean, no. particularly the use of drones and the use of military power in ways that are clearly extra constitutional. It's still like nobody talks about it. So that was, um, that's what that, that's the, that's the light fair of that documentary. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, uh, well, you, you, this has probably occurred to you, but wow, it would be an incredible sequel if you could follow trump's uh, uh you know his uh let, let's let's call it re-election campaign uh, especially if he went to prison wow that would be yeah. quite a remarkable uh film you'd have a lot of competition in that uh in that arena though i think yeah no kidding no no kidding yeah we'll see uh we'll see how that plays out so <laughs> by way of follow-up rob um <laughs> what do you think i mean obviously as you said um, the 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 forefathers, uh, the people who built the U.S. Constitution. Um, you know, it's generally accepted that the brilliant men, very principled people, uh, they had a very clear vision of what they wanted to accomplish, and it's worked very well. You know, for for a long time, people call it, you know the last great hope, um, especially for for freedom. So, what do you suppose has been the cause? Of this, of this, of this shift to the left, and the weaponization or the development of the presidency as sort of an authoritarian uh, figure, which which he which the, the officer was never intended to be. Yeah. Uh, what what are the sort of streams in the culture to, that you think are 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 causing that? Do you have an idea about that? I don't want to just blame the left. I think that lets the right off the hook because they're equally yeah. complicit in this garbage, right? Honestly, I mean, uh, so, some of it. In, in certain instances, and again, people can see this in the documentary, in some instances, it is presidents cannily or cynically stealing power that's not accorded them. Like Truman in the 1950s, just knowing and his advisors telling him after North Korea attacks South Korea, you are constitutionally barred from declaring war. You are the commander in chief, but the Congress gets to decide if we go to war. And he and his team cooking up this idea that like, well, okay, let's just send a couple of troops there and call it a police action and see if we can get away with it. And they just try it and they do. And it completely upturns all these constitutional strictures. And then there's a new normal set in, which is that people just begin to assume that the president is empowered with the authority to start wars. But on the flip side, a lot of it is also just uh, congressional cowardice. So in, mm. in America... Again, yeah, the House of Representatives and the Senate, it's part of it is them also ceding power because they don't want to do the dirty work of crafting policy. Right. And that's why I also don't want to let Republicans off the hook. I mean, I can I can say it's not as if I'm particularly impressed with the policy aptitude of the, you know, the crop, the the, the new Republican crop in the House of Representatives. Right. They don't strike me as serious legislators. A lot of the times they appear to be more interested in becoming Fox News pundits and cable stars than doing the dirty work of compromise and creating legislation. Mm -hmm. And into that void, executive power seeps in. Right. So that's right. that's what it is. And then what, what's the solution? I mean, there's basically no solution other than more people aggressively taking control of their own life and, and not assuming that some distant political figure can save them. How do we do that? I, I don't I don't know. It's a bad, that's a bad, I don't know. You make interesting that's, documentary that's a films, hard, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we've talked about about one of your films about the presidency. Uh, not to be outdone in terms of tackling hard questions, you also took on the concept of of racism, but you took it on from a very 
uh, oblique perspective. Uh, so I want to talk about your, your next film. Uh, to set that up, I have a quotation here from uh, Charles Murray, who I know is someone uh, whose writings you admire. Uh, he once wrote that illegitimacy is the single most important social problem of our time, more important than crime, drugs, poverty, illiteracy, welfare, or homelessness, because it drives everything else. So by way of segue, I want to talk next about this film uh, that you made about the Harvard professor the, the, uh, and, and how uh, really he was, uh, he was uh, mistreated at Harvard. Um, uh, in fact, you wrote a piece uh, last year uh, entitled Harvard Cancelled Its Best Black Professor. Why? Uh, you want to talk about, about, uh, about this project and, and why you did, why you approached it from that point of view? Yeah, it's a dude named Roland Fryer who is born to a, um, he's abandoned by his mom at birth, born into poverty in small town Florida. His dad goes to prison for sexual assault when Roland is in high school. A bunch of Roland's friends fall into the drug trade and go to prison when he's in high school. He, Roland barely makes it to college. And then within a matter of years, he becomes the youngest tenured black professor in the history of Harvard University. That's the that's the hero's journey of our yeah. man Roland, right? Incredible, yes. And at Roland is just not a particularly political person. He is a genius economic mind. And once he got tenure, he basically did what you're supposed to do if you're a genius like him, which is take your brain and your resources and throw them at the most difficult, vexing, provocative questions of race in America and see what the answers are, right? And he did this, and he repeatedly found things that burst the neat progressive pieties that dominate a place like Harvard University. And because Roland's not a bitch, he just reported them. It's right. <laughs> like, this is what I found. Right. This is what I found about the reality of acting white in American high schools, which is where high academically high-achieving Black students are castigated by their Black friends for being race traitors for doing well in their homework. Mm -hmm. Roland looks into it. There's one thing for me to say it. It's one thing for Charles Murray right. to say it. You could just dismiss him as like, oh, it's like a crotchety white white conservative. When Roland Fryer says it, when our man who has like all the street cred you could ever imagine says it, you're like, ah, shit, I can't do that anymore. This might right. actually be true. Mm -hmm. And he, he released a, a series of just bombshell academic investigations that happened to be highly problematic in the kind of woke spaces he operated in. And then a couple of years ago, his career suddenly cut short. And the standard narrative set by the New York Times chiefly is that Roland was a just vicious sexual predator and he's found guilty of sexual harassment and he's duly punished by Harvard. And the punishment Roland received is basically the worst possible thing you can do to someone if they have tenure. So in America, I don't know what the academic system is in right. Canada, it's but similar. in America you can earn yeah. tenure, which essentially gives you a guarantee of a job for life if you're right. a really elite academic, which which Roland had at the time. Yeah. But they did everything else you're allowed to do to someone who has those protections, which is kick him off campus for a couple of years. They liquidated his lab. They shut it down. They took all of his money. They stigmatized him in his profession. They made him basically unhirable anywhere else. And that was that. That was the punishment. Yeah. And that was the narrative for a little bit. And I had gotten some hints that perhaps the story was not what it appeared to be. And in our documentary, we show that the story is not what it appears to be. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'll leave it at that. Yeah. It, it, it's, uh, first of all, I, I'm very grateful for the, for the documentary because I had not heard of him. He sort of reminds me of, uh, you know, people like, uh, like Dr. Thomas Sowell or, or Larry Elder who get, treated they get whipped uh with with the racism pardon the pun despite their their skin color and uh i i guess what it reveals is that um it's not it's not the color of your skin that's no shield if you have and if you have and if you express the wrong ideas especially if you express them well uh especially if you're coherent and you're persuasive and you have this um this obvious you know legitimacy that 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 uh Professor Fryer had so he he was a great threat to the left to the leftist establishment at Harvard uh, wasn't he and and that was why he was singled out for this kind of treatment wasn't he 
That's what I think. I mean, that's that's where we try to muster ample evidence to support. Right. Uh, you know, and... So what does that say about the truth of the critical race theory, the Robin D'Angelo, Ibram X. Kendi version of critical race theory in America, in, in the West? What does that, what does that do? Is it, does it debunk it or does it show how toxic it can be uh, when it's, when it's applied and when it's misapplied? I could just, I could, I feel like I can speculate as to what Roman Fryer thinks about critical race theory. Okay. Which is, it posits that black people are helpless, passive victims in right. need of, of white saviors. Any problem they have is because of white outsiders and any solutions to their problems need to be given to them by white outsiders, right? Right. Their salvation has to come from outside. Right. And all and B, critical race theory is mostly uh, intell pure intellectual masturbation, completely unconcerned with the material well-being of actual black people. Yeah. It's an intellectual fad that you know tenured professors have the luxury of indulging in indefinitely particularly the white professors they can indulge in this garbage to to you know to, to perform their allyship to to show that they're a good white person and their black colleagues can dutifully receive this wonderful self-sacrificial love from this white ally and meanwhile the kids of harlem or the kids of Chicago, or the black kids of Richmond, year after year after year, still get failed by their schools, failed by their parents, failed by their communities, and are stuck in endless loops of poverty and violent dysfunction. Mm -hmm. I think that's what he would say. This is a mm -hmm. this is an irrelevant yeah. intellectual fad. What one of the things I should know, I, but uh, I don't. He promised, promised. I don't think he would say that. He he would say that on the record. And that was part of the problem. Right? <laughs> it was like, problem. Yeah, it was yes. like you could be, you know, you could be like a mildly conservative black person at Harvard and have some problems with woke orthodoxy or find it condescending. Right. But just keep that to yourself. You know, you maybe mm -hmm. can voice that at a cocktail party or two. Don't say that out loud. Right. But he's <laughs> a truth. Yeah. And he's and a, a but he was a truth teller. I and, and I got the sense that was why you were drawn to him, right? But the other thing that I got out of the out of that uh, documentary is that the left really doesn't care about black people. It, it it can't care about black people because if it did, then it wouldn't. It would never even consider tearing down somebody as exemplary as as Dr. Fryer. Uh, why would you tear down somebody like that? I, I mean, he's an example of he's a shining example of what you'd want young black kids to to be. You know, uh, in, in terms of if they were going to maximize their individual possibilities to work hard. Uh, to be honest, to be truthful, to be ethical, to be principled. Uh, it, it seems to me if they really cared about black people, they would never want to tear somebody like him down. Would you agree? Right. But what if your status as a tenured professor at Harvard is dependent upon the problems of the black community never getting solved? Right. Yes. That's it. It's like yes. some jerk the parable like Larry of the tarantula. Bobo. Part of, yeah. right, part, of, part of his moral authority comes from the idea that black people are perpetually victimized. Right. And that institutional racism is everywhere and it's basically insurmountable. And if it's insurmountable, right. then Larry Bobo gets to go give TED Talks indefinitely about institutional racism. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, can't be fixed. Funny. Yeah, and, and it's like, I know you, you, you're you a philosophy student, so you remember Nietzsche's parable of the tarantula, right? Uh, but oh, uh, Don't okay. make me do this. Don't, don't, <laughs> okay. don't, don't remind people how much I've forgotten since sophomore year. Come on, well, bro, I'm you're... almost 40. Come on. Wait, well, you were smart remind enough not me, to go to law me. school. You were smart enough not to go to law school, so we'll give you credit <laughs> for that here. Uh, so, but you didn't just take on Harvard; you also took on uh, Yale. Uh, you, you you did a story about what has Yale become in 2015. You remember this one? Uh, the viral video of Yale's uh, shrieking girl screaming at Professor Nicholas Christakis exploded across the internet. You want to talk about this film? You weren't you you, you took on Harvard. That wasn't enough. You had to yeah. go after the other great uh uh you know ivy league school uh why did you what 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 drew you to that story and again i've also done one on brown and in a week we're going to do one about princeton and the university of pennsylvania so my hope wow. is by the time my eldest child is ready <laughs> to apply to college i will have essentially rendered her last name radioactive in the ivy league <laughs> making it impossible for her to matriculate to any of those schools that's 
That's what I'm doing. I'm saving Ohio the family State, money. Here we come, right? I'm gonna go to UVA. <laughs> there you go. There yeah, you go. I mean that was um, I think uh, just a meta. This is uh, it's gonna be a little self indulgent, but part of what we're also trying to do is the thesis of our company is that we it's Netflix quality production in terms of just the raw technical production ability. I agree. Editing, it's animation. Yeah, yeah I agree. color it's correction, really good. everything. Mm-hmm. But it's tackling topics that would never be tackled by a proper establishment Hollywood studio, right? Right. But also part of the ambition is wanting the craftsmanship of the storytelling. So a lot of our heroes and inspirations are people that are not particularly political, that we just find to be incredible storytellers, including Canada's finest Malcolm Gladwell, who I like, despite the fact that everybody else in my orbit hates him. (laughs) I like him. I listen to his podcast. I know he got like defeated by Douglas Murray and Matt Taibbi recently in a high profile. I don't care. I like him. I, I think he's a Harvard. I, I think he's a Harvard guy, Rob. Uh, Glad I'm is. not. He might as well be. He yeah. might as well. I mean, he's a New Yorker yeah. guy, like yeah. which is the same thing. That's all part of the cathedral. So, but I um, he's a wonderful storyteller, and just the way he can take stuff and and kind of deconstruct it and take a thing you think you understand and show it from a different angle and, right. and that having it kind of reveals, it reveals a, a, a hidden truth. Mm-hmm. We did that with a documentary recently for the channel about a couple of viral incidences that happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin. But, we, but I really oh, got yes. my start doing it with this yeah. one about Yale, which all yeah. which is to say that's an extremely long preamble. Yeah. There was, what is it? Five years ago, mega viral, Captured on a cell phone incident of a Yale undergrad screaming down a very prominent Yale professor because it's a convoluted story, but he had uh, he and his wife, the administration at Yale had sent out an extremely condescending mass email to all the undergraduates, essentially telling them, um, trying to micromanage what kind of Halloween costumes they could wear. Right. It's like, culturally sensitive, mm-hmm. you know, don't transgress, you know, uh, we're concerned with marginalized cultures. And then this professor, Nicholas Christakis and his wife had pushed back against that. And their fundamental point being that you do want to have a certain level of transgressive energy in undergraduates because you want them to learn how to navigate conflict, <clears throat> right? Uh, Nicholas Christakis's wife, Erica Christakis is a specialist in childhood development. And she's very she's a very good and powerful critic of helicopter parenting and, you know, having these adults come down and and micromanage kids because it robs kids of the ability to work through conflicts on their own, kind of develop those mental muscles. Mm -hmm. And she kind of takes that philosophy and applies it at the undergraduate level where she's like, these are super smart 21 year olds. They're about to go do big things in the world, but they need to be trained how to engage in difficult conversations and how to, you know, parry provocative statements how to learn exactly what the line is in terms of what is and what is not considered offensive. And anyway, the, the professor's pushing back against that. This micromanagement from the administration caused a gigantic, huge set of protests that inevitably culminated with this viral incident of an undergrad screaming down this guy. Right, right. And what we tried to do is show the standard issue conservative lines about this being a matter of free speech or free expression kind of miss something deeper which is what exactly Yale offers undergraduates. And I think increasingly it's not a rugged, intellectually rigorous, rigorous liberal arts education where you take these fine young minds and kind of expose them to the great works of human history and then through a highly disciplined process, teach them how to formulate arguments, how to deal with difficult ideas, you know, infuse within them a, a profound intellectual humility. That's not what Yale does. We, I think it's become much more of like a gilded summer camp. You pay a lot of money to go there and you expect to be serviced as an undergraduate. You expect to be affirmed. Uh-huh. You expect to be flattered. You don't expect to be challenged. And it's that that milieu, that mentality that infuses that viral incident. And we do a kind of deeper structural analysis of what Yale is and mm-hmm. how kind of that incident was almost inevitable given the set of expectations that undergraduates have mm-hmm. there. It shatters a lot of illusions that people have about not only about universities, but about, you know, these Ivy League 
colleges because um, you know the 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 idea of a liberal education is that you get exposed to things that you don't know that are outside of your of your own experience. You know, if you come from a a small town in North Dakota or you're from New York City, you know, you have an individualized experience of life based upon where you're from and the people you know and your and the things that that you've been exposed to. But the idea of going to university is to get introduced to all the things you don't know, the great thinkers, uh, to to have this sort of uh, strongest steel is forged and hot as fire uh, concept of of debating ideas. And uh, your 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 film really shattered uh, that vision. It really shatters people's ideas about what college life is, especially for parents who maybe have never been to college or went to college during a time when it wasn't like that. Uh, was that sort of why part of the reason why you made the film is, is is to sort of you know tear off the you know the cover and show people you know what's really going on at these schools? It's not just that; it's also those people, uh, the elites, are the people that end up running the country after they graduate. Right. Yeah. And it had always been an assumption that they grow out of it. They grow out of this kind of woke phase. Well, I think it's on the average, particularly elite college campus, the percentage of like hardcore dickish authoritarian activists is like only about 10%. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of undergraduates are not particularly political, but they know that they need to keep their heads down if they want to have smooth ascension in the American meritocracy. So they right. they kind of learn to capitulate. They learn to abide by the rules and also kind of mouth whatever empty political slogans they're expected to mouth if they want to ensure that they get a junior analyst job at Deloitte or whatever yeah. dumb aspirations they have, right? Yeah, and the problem is that's what they get trained in. That's the milieu they get trained in, and they bring that to the workplace. That doesn't get it doesn't get burned out of them. Mm -hmm. And when enough elites in institutions of authority, you have enough elites that take over these institutions of authority, um, uh, like it's a it's a recipe for catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I think that's a big reason why. Uh, the summer of 2020 in America was an epic catastrophe. I mean, not to get too into, but you know, in, in our country, we had a, a combination of obviously COVID lockdowns, extreme, like, you know, the incineration of businesses and destruction of people's livelihoods, right. shutting down schools, uh, fueling a you know, epic increase in child abuse, epic increase in drug overdoses in combination with our mass racial reckoning, our post-Floyd right, racial reckoning. Right, right. So that's a great and, segue into the, your it, next film I want to talk right. about. Let's talk about The Broken Boys of Kenosha. Obviously, every everyone's eyes, uh, I mean, certainly in, in the United States and Canada, were just riveted to the Kyle Rittenhouse trial not so long ago. And you made this really interesting documentary about The Broken Boys of Kenosha. What drew you to that story? And why did you think that was important to document it? Right, so we're right... That's exactly. We're in this 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 uh, lockdown, pressurized racial justice moment of the summer of 2020. And a week after George Floyd, this guy named Jacob Blake gets shot by a police officer on the north side of Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is like a small bedroom community. Gets shot by a white police officer and someone captures the shooting on the cell phone. That like eight second snippet gets uploaded to some social network and instantly goes viral. And it, it's not an organic virality, virality, though. It's every elite, coastal, mainstream, corporate media institution, other than like Fox News, was desperate to find the next George Floyd. They want, they're oh, desperate yes. for it. They're right. fiending for it. They're craving for it, right? Because mm -hmm. they're in this moment of grand racial reckoning and tens of thousands of people is taking to the street to denounce America's horrible institutional racism. And they basically convince the majority of the country that this clip, this shooting, is George Floyd 2.0. And as a result, 6,000 outside protesters descend on Kenosha and over the course of three nights, incinerate large portions of the city. On that, after that, on that third night, that's the night that Kyle Rittenhouse comes down. Mm -hmm. He picks up an AR-15 in a medic bag and goes to Kenosha to protect a used car dealership. So these two mega viral news incidences are intimately intertwined. And Kenosha has this rare distinction of being a, a place that birthed two mega viral news incidences in the matter of just 72 hours, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And part of what we do is show that 
again, this completely ideologically corrupted corporate media narrative about Jacob Blake was not just wrong. I've taken to calling it anti-truth because they so flagrantly misrepresented what happened, both within those seven seconds of the viral news clip and the two minutes before and the two minutes after, the things that didn't make the frame, that if you're an outside observer, you would draw the exact wrong lessons as to what needed to be done to improve the lives of both Jacob Blake and his kids, right? Right. But we also hit the right because I think there was an overreaction on the right side of the political spectrum. And for when Kyle Rittenhouse goes down, it becomes just kind of enforced orthodoxy that Kyle Rittenhouse is nothing other than a Second Amendment martyr. He is he's like a this baby faced gun right activist who is a true American patriot. And was just there to protect private property. And anything, if you say anything other than that, you must be like a neo-Marxist, non-binary, you know, trans woke <laughs> activist, right? And both of those neat partisan narratives missed the true tragedy of what happened in Kenosha. And what we found was this shared trauma between both Jacob Blake, Kyle Rittenhouse, and two that basically the two other main characters of the Kenosha tragedy. Mm -hmm. And we can get into it if you want. I mean, but that's the, uh, well, let's get into it. I'm interested. This is this is. Very so I don't want to give stuff. away too much. I want to, you know, I want to entreat okay, the audience to watch. But fair enough. I'll say this: in America, one out of every three boys is raised without a dad. It's substantially it's worse, higher. It's than worse the, in black communities, right? It is worse in black yeah. communities, but it's very bad in white communities as well, which yeah. tends to get overlooked in conservative mm -hmm. spaces, right? Mm -hmm. And he. Uh, we're tied with the UK for the highest rate in the world in terms of rates of fatherless boys. Really? And oh. there's emerging neuroscience that substantiates kind of common sense about the importance of dads in a young boy's life, particularly during adolescence, where dads tend to be like the externalized, like, like literally young boys do not have the neural networks yet to properly control. And they get, they get flooded with this testosterone that makes them want to go conquer and do heroic things, which properly channeled leads to excellence, right? Right. Improperly channeled, if it's not properly tempered by some sort of outside common sense controls, it can lead to violent chaos, all right? right. Mm -hmm. Kyle Rittenhouse didn't have a dad. Jacob Blake didn't have a dad. The two other main characters of Kenosha did not have dads. And what overtook Kenosha in the summer of 2020? Violent chaos. Wow. It's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. Interesting. Yeah. So there's a connection between uh, the father, and this sounds very Jordan Peterson-esque, uh, the connection between you know the father as being someone who can provide wisdom to a young man about how to bridle, how to control, how to... Uh, channel, if you will, uh, all of this energy that you call it, you know, testosterone, um, and understanding that um, part of your duty as a man is to is to bridle and, and to control that aggression, because when you don't, the results can be destructive, disastrous, or, or even murderous, something along those lines. Would you agree? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think that dads are uniquely positioned to do that. It's not that yeah. moms can't do it, um, but they serve different purposes. And we're now running a mass sociological experiment in America about what does it look like yeah. to have all these boys that had no no paternal order during their formative years. Mm -hmm. I forget it's, where it was, but I remember watching an expose. Uh, and it may have been on the Daily Wire or something where there were a number of, uh, of, uh, of men who had uh, raised kids. They were... Uh, older guys, and uh, they actually went into a school, a local school, and uh, would partner with uh, teenage boys during the day to sort of be like a big brother type uh, and and would offer guidance and things like that. And uh, I understand the results were that they noticed a significant increase in their academic grades, uh, a significant decrease in crime, significant decrease in violence in the school. Uh, all the girls at the school felt safer, and and they interviewed these boys, and they all to 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 an individual, to a young man, uh, they described how much this had helped them, how it sort of filled a void that they didn't even know existed. So that yeah. that just shows the power, you know, that that uh, a community 
uh, has uh, to, to help a community like, you know, Kenosha and to help those boys. Maybe that's a solution. I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a policy solution to it. I don't think it's new tax credits, right? I don't think it's universal yeah. healthcare. I'm honestly, I've, I've kind of gravitated away from some of my adolescent libertarian leanings and, and much more comfortable with the uses of state power in order to equalize opportunity. I, I'm not, I find myself, uh, completely, uh, even somewhat enthusiastic about like targeted investments, public investments in communities, but mm. that's like, that's like 5% of the battle. The other 95% of the battle is individual men taking some responsibility. And now right. I really sound like Jordan Peterson. I can try to do an Alberta accent while I do it. It's not <laughs> going to sound nice. It's probably going to come off a little insulting. I'll just stick to my hardcore Yankee American accent. <laughs> Clean but, up your room. Clean yeah, up your room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, exactly. I, uh, yeah, be the alpha lobster. Come on now. Well, Rob, I, this think, is... I mean, honestly, though, but part of that, you know, just to maybe end yeah. up with, um, Peterson obviously is intellectual hero of ours, of course, but I do think part of what has fueled his insane success, at least here in America, is that there is this void in the discourse about these particular issues, and he is just a uniquely powerful and charismatic articulator of mm -hmm. these issues, both diagnosing the problems and then trying to provide some inspirational scripts for men to actually do the thing that's necessary to solve the problem. Right. Especially young men. Yeah, that's right. well stated. This has been wonderful, Rob. I know that uh, we only have so much of your time. We, uh, we we usually finish off with something called the reading list. And I've chosen a couple books. I read that you were uh, uh, something of a, of a fan or an acolyte of Charles Murray, who is obviously controversial. Uh, but mostly correct, in my opinion. Uh, so a couple of books of his. One is called uh, Human Diversity, The Biology of Gender, Race, and, and Class. This is a very interesting book. The thesis is that advances in genetics and neuroscience are overthrowing an intellectual orthodoxy that has ruled the social sciences for decades. The core of the orthodoxy consists of the three dogmas. Gender is a social construct. That's Dr. John Money. Race is a social construct. Um, Class is a function of privilege. And Murray says the problem is all three dogmas are half-truths and that they've stifled progress in understanding the rich texture that biology adds to our understanding of the social, political, economic worlds we live in, as you've, as you've mentioned. The second book is also one of uh, uh, Charles Murray's. It's called What It Means to Be a Libertarian, A Personal Interpretation. Uh, and uh, here he says that it, the description is he combines the tenets of classical libertarian philosophy, of which you're obviously... Uh, a fan with his own highly original, always provocative thinking. Murray shows why less government advances individual happiness and promotes more vital communities and a richer culture by applying the truths our founders held to be self-evident to today's most urgent social and political problems. He creates a clear, workable vision for the future. So, Rob, if you wouldn't mind, would you would you uh, mind leaving our viewers with uh, a, a selection of whether it's a film or a movie or, or, or a website or a book that you think uh, would help our viewers uh, maybe advance their understanding of some of the topics you've been talking with us today? You know what they should read is my favorite Charles Murray book is his least famous. It's his book called Real Education. Oh. And we actually got a chance to interview him on the channel about it as well. It's the most popular interview we've done because I think it really strikes a nerve. And what it does, it kind of, it, it, it avoids most of the issues of his that tend to get him in trouble. And it's just like, he basically says, here is what we know definitively scientifically about IQ, what it is, where it comes from, its degree of malleability. Right. And what he shows in very careful, precise, but kind of devastating Charles Murray prose is that taking the science of IQ seriously requires radically re-envisioning K through 12 education. Mm -hmm. Just a lot of K through 12 is built on some dangerously optimistic and naive conceptions of human intelligence, that it's either not real or that it can be modified through, you know, intensive instruction or, or you know, the right pedagogy. And he kind of just like annihilates all that stuff and shows that refusing to live in illusions is not, it's not in order to be kind of condescending or dismissive or even elitist or hierarchical when it comes to IQ. It's in order, you need to free yourself of delusions so you can craft an education system that genuinely does aid people in human flourishing. Yeah. And so we did, he has this book about this. It's only maybe 200 pages long. Mm -hmm. You'll finish it in a day. Cause it's one of those, it's one, it's a Gladwellian kind of thing where right. 
within a within a page like oh my god like my whole life is a lie <laughs> like everything i thought was true is like this is ridiculous and he hints at some solutions but he doesn't have a lot of, but he but he he will, the book ends it will convince you that k through 12 i think in both of our countries is premised on a series of very dangerous and counterproductive lies yeah. and, and, and false assumptions. Yeah. And he, he drowns you in data. And one thing I yeah. I did read that book and it was remarkable to see how you could take the IQ results and overlay them over academic performance and then overlay that over, you know, economic outcomes and things of that nature. And it was just so consistent. It was really remarkable. And right. and he's he's so talented uh, for being able to express that in such a coherent and persuasive way he's he really and, is a unique intellectual and bear right and, and he gets kind of criticized because people are like well what are you saying that um people that are on the higher iq distribution are better than people on the low iq distribution and he's like you even asking that question means there's a false moral right. assumption embedded in your question which is that iq is has anything to do with moral worth right. anything to do with human dignity anything to do with the quality of a person, which it doesn't because it's mostly completely outside of people's control. Right. And that, I mean, he basically thinks people that are on the lower part of the distribution, you are robbing them of satisfying professional opportunities in the current K through 12 system. And he also says people on the higher end, you're robbing them of the opportunity for them to be intellectually humiliated. He actually is very big on it. He's like, but let's say you got lucky, you're like in the top five to 10%, whatever. It's extraordinarily important, particularly in college, that you confront minds that are greater than yours, which I, I definitely did. Me and too. that you be infused in your marrow with this notion of your own intellectual limitations. Because yeah. if you don't, yeah. if you bring that arrogance into, into the world, well, then you get then you get a lab leak and COVID lockdowns. But we don't have time for that. <laughs> well, Rob... This has been just wonderful. I'm so grateful for your time. Uh, your your films are brilliant. I recommend them highly. I'm looking forward to your to your next seeing your next project. Uh, can you can you give us a hint about what what you're working on right now? Before yeah, you go? I, I, we thought it was done. It would come out tomorrow. It turns out that I suck at my job and it needs a week more <laughs> of work. But we have a week from Monday, like Monday or Tuesday, on the channel. We're putting out. We have these three case studies of people that were censored very similarly to what happened to Roland Fryer. And the the first two we'll be releasing uh, in in a week, and then the next one we'll be releasing a couple of weeks after that. So it's kind of a, several more case studies of kind of covert dark arts cancellations of dissident professors in elite higher education. Excellent. Well, we'll provide all the links so people can find you and can find your your outstanding films. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, Rob. And best of of luck in your future projects. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.